And my name is Joe, and my pronouns are he and him, and I'm glad to be here with you all. You remember Achan, right? Old Testament, anti-hero, book of Joshua, Achan. Achan the troublemaker, Achan in the forbidden cape, the fall guy for the disaster of the battle of Ai, Achan, anyone? (laughs) What do they teach you kids in Sunday school these days? I'm not actually that surprised. Achan's story is kind of a marginal story in the Old Testament, but it is one of the stories that stuck in my head from growing up as a Bible nerd. So I will enlighten you about Achan, and I know that some of you do know this. You do know this one, right? Battle of Jericho, big wall, uh, invading Israelites, marched around it seven times daily for six days, and then on the seventh day they go around and around seven times, and the walls came a-tumbling down. After the walls fall down in Jericho, the Israelite army rushes in to the city. They squash the remaining resistance, and they claim the city for God. Big victory for the Hebrews. Now they were on to claim the rest of the promised land. And after Jericho was subdued, the next city in the way was Aya. More like a small town, really. If Jericho was Saskatoon, Aya would be Nuanlagi. Backwater community. So General Joshua divided up his army and sent a couple of thousand soldiers, more than enough, up to capture Nuon Lagi. Should have been more, enough, more than enough. But the people of Aya were fierce. They made a stand. They drove the Hebrews all the way back to Jericho, tails between their legs. Their hearts melted like water, the scripture says. General Joshua panicked. He went before God in fear and trembling. What happened? You said you would be with us. This was your fight. We should have just stayed in the desert. And God answered. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I imposed on them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have acted deceitfully. They have put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the Israelites are unable to stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become a thing devoted for destruction themselves. A bit of backstory. When the walls fell down in Jericho, God sent the Hebrew armies in to capture the city. With strict instructions, they were to destroy everything in Jericho. Jericho was to be haram, dedicated to God by destruction. The people would be slaughtered all of them. Animals were to be killed, houses were to be burned, possessions destroyed in the name of the Lord. Bit of an aside, yeah, I got a problem with that. No, I don't actually think that God commanded genocide or the destruction of everything in Jericho. This was a strategic practice. This was a cultural practice, a human tragedy sanitized in the history books by using the name of God. The Bible is filled with tales of human folly. But in the story, as the storyteller says, this was what God wanted. But that's not what happened, apparently. Some things were not destroyed, and God was offended by that. So in the story, God turned against Israel in the Battle of Ayah. 
Israel refused to devote themselves to God, and so in their selfishness, they became haram. They became devoted to destruction instead. That's God's message to, the general, to general Joshua. You lost because you took what belonged to God. Now, what are you going to do about it? So following God's instructions, Joshua tried to make it right. He called all the tribes of Israel before him, before him tribe by tribe. And somehow God selected, pointed to the tribe of Judah. And so Joshua sent everyone else home, called the tribes, the tribe of Judah forward, clan by clan, one at a time, and the clan of Zerah was chosen. Same thing sent everybody home. The clan of Zerah came forward one at a time, one family at a time. The family of Zabdi was chosen. And from the family of Zabdi, God appointed out the household of Achan. And God, our guy, Achan confessed immediately, I am the one who sinned. After the battle, I saw a beautiful cape and 200 shekels of silver and 50 shekels of gold. I saw them, I wanted them, I took them, and I hid them in the ground underneath my tent. So Joshua sent scouts to confirm, and they found the cape and the gold and the silver under Achan's tent. Busted. So Joshua and his guard took Achan and the stolen cape, the silver and the gold, and his tent, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, and his whole entire household, including his children. They took the whole lot into a valley and stoned them to death. Then, for good measure, they burned their bodies, and they piled more stones on top of them, a great heap of stones that remains to this day, again from the perspective of the storyteller. The Valley of Achor, they called it, the Valley of Trouble, Achan's name became a swear word, the Hebrew word for trouble. Oh no, here comes trouble. What an Achan that guy is. Ugh, you're such an Achan. In the story, God accepted this punishment, the sacrifice of Achan's family. And the next time Joshua sent an army up to Nuanlagi, the Hebrews crushed the Nuanlagers, burned their city to the ground. Hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> Yeah, the word of the Lord. Again, problematic story, so many ways. The moral of the story, as I learned it, is that an individual sin never stays that way. I think this story stuck with me as a kid because I easily could have been Achan. I mean, I coveted stuff. I saw things I wanted, and I contemplated how easy it would be to just take them. I had secrets under my bed. Nobody will ever know. So this story was threatening. What if, what if people found out? What if my private sins became the ruin of my whole family? What if I messed things up for the whole nation? It's a lot of pressure to put on a developing morality. And it is a bit manipulative to lay that on a kid, for sure. But the adult message is legitimate. Consequences, choices have consequences. And once choice has been made, the consequences ripple outward beyond our control. That's a key recognition of restorative justice. The impact of a violation goes beyond just the offender and their target. There are no private crimes. There's no such thing as a personal sin. Achan brought trouble to the whole community. That's the first moral of the story. 
Looking again at the story this week, I noticed that God didn't actually pin the responsibility on Achan alone. Israel has sinned. They have broken my covenant. They have stolen and acted deceitfully. The sin is plural. Achan was the one who confessed, and they found proof he was guilty. As a kid, I accepted this as a miraculous investigation. Somehow God picked out Achan's tribe and then his clan and then his family, narrowing it down eventually to Achan himself out of thousands and thousands of Israelites. One bad apple in the whole orchard. That's how good God is. God can spot that. But come on, really? I've watched Law and Order. That's not how you investigate a crime. If you really want to find who is hiding something under their tent, you start looking under tents. You start checking for suspects with dirt under their fingernails. You really think Aiken was the only one in the camp with dirty hands? You think nobody else in the whole nation took the five-finger discount? Really? I suspect that God said they have stolen, they have acted deceitfully, because it wasn't just Aiken. How many tents had stolen goods under them? If you can just point to any tribe, any clan, any family, any person and find a stash of loot. I mean, 3,000 years later, as a young reader, I felt guilty because I could imagine myself doing what Aiken had done. I'm pretty sure that he wasn't the only one who gave in to temptation. You've probably heard the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. Aiken took the blame and paid the cost of his crime. But I could have done the same thing in his place. Could have been anyone. We all make bad decisions. We all break the rules sometimes. Just because I don't bear the consequences doesn't mean I'm innocent. Likewise, just because I'm bearing the consequences doesn't mean that I did anything wrong. Just as the Hebrews were quick to pin the blame for a communal offense onto one individual, so quick were they also to give that personal guilt a collective punishment. They stoned Achan's whole family, including his children. I think that's the other reason this story got stuck in my head as a kid. How fair is that? Where's justice? How can a child take punishment for something their father did? But that's how it works, isn't it? You can't punish just one person. Even if they had only stoned Achan himself, his children still would have suffered that trauma. The financial insecurity, the shame and loss of status from their community. When one person is punished, the tribe suffers. And that's just the direct fallout. You think those who did the stoning, those who carried out the executions, you think they didn't suffer? You think corrections officers don't carry psychological and social costs for the work that they do in our prisons? Five years ago, according to the John Howard Society of Canada, it cost an average of $115,000 per year to keep someone in federal prison. You yourself paid over $500 in taxes this year towards the criminal justice system. We share the cost of punishment, no matter who it is that we punish. Crime has unintended consequences, and so does punishment. The cost of justice is always shared. Then there's the bigger context of Achan's story, the conquest of Canaan. Remember how Achan described his crime with the cape. I saw it, I wanted it, I took it, I claimed it as my own. That's exactly what his people, the nation of Israel, are doing. They saw this land. They needed it because they didn't have their own. They decided that they deserved it because it used to belong to their ancestors, 
and they claimed it as theirs. God wants us to have it. Achan's greed was unsanctioned, while Israel's conquest was sanctioned. But what's the difference? Is it any wonder that a culture of conquest led to individual theft? Achan made his choice. He confessed to it. He could have made a better choice. At the same time, his choice clearly reflected the larger context. Some individuals' choices aren't, are much easier than others. Again, there is no such thing as an entirely personal sin. We live in context, all of us, all the time. Injustice and justice both happen in community. The causes and effects of misconduct are collective. Justice is never as simple as good guys and bad guys, victims and perpetrators, plaintiffs and defendants, guilty and not guilty. Not to say that everything is gray or that individuals aren't responsible for what they do. But even when things are black and white, it's still all connected. Individuals make choices in the context of community, and the community bears responsibility and shares the consequences. If we want justice, we have to own that reality. In words that have resounded in the ongoing civil rights movement in the US, none of us are free until all of us are free. That's a lot. What do we do with all of that? I have a handful of incomplete thoughts to offer this morning. For one, can we let the complexity of working out justice in community lead us towards grace? I was reminded by my internet friend, Science Mike McCarg, this week that physiologically, even our bodies are communities. You are 37 trillion human cells and over 100 trillion bacteria wrapped in a thin layer of epidermis and five million hair follicles. You are a colony organism, and the bacteria in your gut affect the way you think and feel. Why? Because there are more neurons in your gastrointestinal tract than any other part of your body other than your brain. Your gut thinks, and the bacteria get a vote. Your consciousness comes from 86 billion neurons in your brain that compose hundreds of structures with directly competing priorities. And they have an ongoing debate, more severe than any Congress or Parliament, about how you're going to think and feel and act in any moment. And when a vote is called and someone wins, the dissenting pieces pout. We are deeply conflicted organisms. And that's why grace is so important. We have been shaped as a species over millions of years to have trouble arriving at decisions to deal with the incredible uncertainty of life. I feel like a single consciousness. I think in one inner voice in my head most of the time, but I am actually a community in conflict with itself as well as with the outside world. And I have trouble making decisions because I often get those decisions wrong. The diversity slows me down. It keeps me from getting too far ahead of myself. The trouble is by design. It's there intentionally. The cellular biology is beyond me, but I see two points in there. For one, community is how we deal with the raging uncertainty of life. The diversity among us, even the conflict between us, actually serves a purpose. It helps us to thrive in a harsh, natural world. Some of what we have labeled as divergent, subversive, deviant behavior, from the extreme macro view, some of that is entirely natural and even purposeful. 
Take that stereotypical aggressive, angry muscle man. Now I'm scared of him. It's easy to think the worst of a guy like that. But I don't know, a couple thousand years ago, guys like that are protecting my clan from our enemies. They're bringing down the wild animals. They're dragging us through hard winters. Aggression and violence are not particularly admirable traits in our current society. But you can see where they come from, what purpose they served. That doesn't excuse bad behavior, doesn't make anyone less accountable for their choices, but can it open the door for me to see them with a bit more understanding and grace? We are human animals working out our history of violence and our tenuous place in the ecosystem with flawed equipment. And two, that struggle isn't just out there, it's literally happening within me as well. My biological grip on self-control and socially acceptable behavior is just as tenuous. This is Charles Whitman in 1966. Some of you might remember this. He was known as the Texas Tower Sniper after he killed 15 people on a university campus before he was shot and killed by police. In his suicide note, he asked that an autopsy be performed on his brain because he wanted them to find the source of his increasingly violent impulses. And sure enough, doctors found that Charles Whitman had a brain tumor pressing on his amygdala, a region of the brain crucial for emotion and behavioral control. There were physiological reasons for his compulsive behavior. And again, this reality doesn't give license for bad behavior or undo the damage that it does. At the same time, I have to be careful about my judgments and my condemnations because this is the human condition. That same frailty is within me. It's woven into the biological realities. There but for the grace of God, indeed. Grace is essential in community. Justice is extremely complicated. Headlines and courtrooms and TV dramas try to distill the essential facts, try to uncover what really happened trying to make critical, unbiased judgments. You want motive, means, and opportunity. Guilty or not guilty, black and white. And I get it, some of that is essential. If we don't break things down, if we don't find what happened, if we don't make difficult decisions, it's hard to move forward. And those judgments are inherently flawed. They create distance. They carry massive, unintended consequences. How might an appreciation of complexity and holding grace as our starting and end points change our understanding of justice? Like I said, lots of unfinished thoughts this morning. Another one. Most of the time in community, you and I are not directly involved in situations of criminal justice. Some of us are, most of us not. Most days I'm not a victim or an offender. I'm not law enforcement or a lawyer or a judge. I've never even been called for jury duty. So where does that leave me? It's tempting to say, well, I'm not part of this. I just keep my distance. I put up a tall fence and I hope that crime never comes my way. But that's the separation. That's the illusion of crime and punishment as individual rather than collective. Restorative justice asks all of us to take part. Most of the time, I think, our role as community is to bear witness to the pain and the grief and the complexity of injustice. I talked a couple of weeks ago about being willing to enter into the pain of being a victim, allowing ourselves to experience the loss and grief, 
to let go of the illusion that we are in control and that everything is okay. That's hard to do as an individual. We need people around us to hold space for us to enter in. They need to keep it together while we fall apart. They need to carry on so that we can rest for a while. They need to remind us that there is life on the other side of this and to offer support, whatever support we need, to get us there. And to them is us. We all need that when we're on the receiving end of the harshness of life. And that's the kind of community we need to be for others to bring true justice through the path of healing. We saw a great example of this with the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. The community, all of us, entered into the pain of that loss. We stood with the families. We felt the grief ourselves. We provided what help we could. We brought hope as we could. And in time, we participated in healing. Hashtag Humboldt strong. This is us. We're going through this together. Contrast that to the division caused by the shooting of Colton Bushy by Gerald Stanley. Again, a community disaster, pain in all directions, and the community did enter in, sometimes offering hope and healing, but most of the time there was a lot of judgment, a lot of separation. Of course, it's a different situation. There's faults and failures in all directions. And it's understandable that we rushed to judgment, we pointed fingers, we got all defensive about our biases and our justifications. So much went wrong in the events that day and in the responses of our systems and our communities. And I'm not laying blame on anyone today. I'm just wondering about our response, my response. Why did I feel the need to lay judgment, to be the one to say, nope, he did it, he, he should, this should happen to him, he deserved that. Why is that my job? Of course, I arrived at the correct opinions, as always. But my need to judge, my defensiveness around that, that got in the way of my entering in. I blamed people instead of feeling for them and with them. I didn't help anyone carry their pain because I put myself on the jury instead. The rush to judgment, to choose a side, to decide what justice should be, that gets in the way of the healing journey. Audrey mentioned Father Greg Boyle, G-Dog. He has a great line. Here is what we seek, a compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. I think that applies to justice as well as poverty. Compassion stands in awe at what victims have to carry rather than telling them how to feel or when to move on. And compassion stands in awe at the burdens of offenders as well. It feels the weight of whatever they're coming from. It feels the weight of their choices that they have to carry moving forward. Not that they might avoid responsibility, but by the community entering in rather than rushing to judgment, we make space for them to enter in, to go through it, to hopefully be transformed by it. And I think compassion also stands in awe at the role and responsibility of the police and lawyers, and judges, and prison guards, and parole officers, everyone involved there. Not to be titillated by their power, not to excuse their human failings, but again to, to be in awe, to feel the weight of that, to recognize they're doing their best, acting on our behalf, to feel the weight of our shared neediness, to feel the weight of moral complexity. To move from judgment to awe, from here's what I think you should do now to 
how can I feel the weight? How can I carry, how can I lighten the load? We will hear more brilliance from Father Greg in a couple of weeks. One more thought for today. Micah Mission says that crime control lies primarily in the community. I don't think they're talking about vigilante justice. Sorry to all you comic book fans. We are not Batman. But we are all in the crime-fighting business. There's a fascinating documentary I saw a long while back called Superheroes. The filmmakers follow a bunch of people who, saw, who see themselves as real-life superheroes, complete with costumes and nicknames like Dark Guardian and Amazonia and Urban Avenger. These are real people on the streets of North America working for justice. They get all dressed up often at night. They run around and do stuff in the neighborhood. Some of them are a little quirky with self-taught quasi-ninja skills. They've got geeky utility belts and fancy armor and masks. Most of them start off looking to fight bad guys and bust up crime rings. But in the end, they spend their time doing much more ordinary acts of community helping drunk people to make their way safely home, bringing sandwiches to people living on the street, reporting broken streetlights to municipal services, organizing community events. You don't have to wear a mask to do those things, but I'm sure it adds to the experience. I think that is what community justice looks like most of the time. Not the superheroes, but the ordinary intentional acts of looking out for each other. It's about preventative measures to lower the likelihood of harm up front. It's boring stuff like good, safe church policies, well-funded mental health and self-care resources, thoughtful community bylaws and development strategies, solid programming for kids and youth, investing in education, harm reduction resources for addicts, family counseling, crisis services, refugee and immigrant integration, clean and attractive parks, all of that stuff that brings health and connection to a community. Those aren't perks or secondary services or stuff we can only afford when budgets aren't tight. It is the stuff of proactive crime prevention. Those are the conditions for justice given, a th given priority. Healthy communities make for healthy people, creating the conditions for people to make good choices rather than threatening punishment for bad ones. Our scripture this morning says that we are called to be ambassadors for reconciliation. Good local politics, community develop, development, healthy organizations, that's what ambassadors for reconciliation do. So again, don't see justice work as separate from you, something that other people do. You do justice as well by being a good neighbor, by paying your taxes, by volunteering and donating, whatever it is that you're doing to show up with compassion and intention in our shared spaces. You are a superhero. Let me know if you want some help coming up with a cool nickname. It sounds cliche, it's, it's simple, but the research backs it up. Justice comes through good relationships by people investing in community of all sorts. I think that's enough from me this morning. Next week, I will be inviting us to dream about the future of justice together. And then the week after, the first week of, of February, we will wrap up this series with a video sermon from Father Greg Boyle um, from the Homeboy Industries Gang Intervention Organization. So stay tuned for good, good things coming. Let's pray.
Creator God, from the beginning of time, you have been bringing order out of chaos, meaning from madness, the hope of justice out of this messy humanity that we all share. Give us the wisdom we crave, the compassion we need, the community we long for. This is your work, and we join in with fear and trembling, with hope and anticipation. Amen.